All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views, and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. This is the inaugural episode of season five. You're joined by me and my co-host and good friend, Miles O'Neill. Miles, welcome back to the show, my friend. Oh, it is it is great to be back. Um, you know, I've been coming in a little bit on these weekly roundups, um, but, you know, really missed our uh, our time doing the app chain season and, and really diving in deep into some, uh, some really interesting themes. And, um, you know, I think we've got another great season prepped, uh, you know, ready to go at this point. Yeah. And you know what? I love giving us compliments. So I'm just going to say that app chain thesis that we did, I think that was very timely. One of the key themes in that <laughs> app chain thesis was this converging architecture between Ethereum and Cosmos. So sort of the same challenges that the roll-up community are now facing was already faced by Cosmos a little while ago. And I think the, the theme of season five is going to turn out to be equally as timely. So we're going to be talking about season five is, drumroll please, the end game for liquid staking. And this one's going to be very interesting because, frankly, liquid staking is something that's very core to the security assumptions of many of these different blockchains. And frankly, in the bear market, we're recording this, you know, this is actually July 3rd, day before 4th of July of 2023. And liquid staking is kind of one of the only hot spaces of crypto right now. So for those of you who haven't tuned into previous seasons of Belker, Miles and I are going to go very deep on the topic of liquid staking over the course of seven episodes, technically nine episodes, including this one, the intro where we're going to cover the major themes with you of the season, and then we're going to do a recap for you at the end. But throughout each one of those seven episodes, we're going to be pulling in experts that are uh, very in tune with some of the major themes and kind of poking at some of these big ideas. And right now, what we're going to do is lay out some of the big ideas of the season. And then, you know, eight episodes later, we'll see which of those were right and which ones we've changed our mind on. So before we get into those major themes, I actually want to start with a little bit of a history of, frankly, the early design of Ethereum and the history of proof of state uh, liquid staking as a concept. So uh, typical uh, from uh, a couple of different things, but liquid staking actually did not originate in the Ethereum ecosystem. Actually, the very first paper that was authored on liquid staking was authored by one Felix Lutch, who was the COO at Chorus One. And this is actually an idea that came out of the Cosmos ecosystem, what he called delegation vouchers. And I was actually surprised when this paper came out. This was 2019, which well, isn't really that long ago, especially no. for such an, such an established, important corner of crypto. Today, Lido, I think, has the most uh, TVL of any protocol on Ethereum. But the history of liquid staking, I'll, I'll sort of dive in here, and then you can jump in and correct me when I inevitably get something wrong. But one of the early core propositions when Ethereum was switching from a proof-of-work chain to a proof-of-stake chain was they wanted to make sure that it didn't get concentrated and specifically something that they were concerned about was the creation of staking pools. And what they didn't want to use almost a hyperbolic example is to have 100 or 50 or 25 extremely large entities that was controlling an outsized amount of the Ethereum stake. So what they wanted to do was make sure that that didn't happen by not selecting a delegated proof of stake mechanism. So Ethereum is very careful about what gets uh, brought into the actual Ethereum protocol. Unlike Cosmos, where there is an in-protocol delegation mechanism, Ethereum decided to not have that. They instituted the minimum 32 Ethereum that you needed to stake. 
which has stood till this day, although there is a proposal, and Mike Neuter has written to increase the max balance of Ethereum nodes. And the idea was that this was supposed to sort of signal, but also be a design decision to encourage self-staking. Yep. And I think the postmortem on that is that in some ways that's been effective, but in some other ways that's been very ineffective at the same time, because now you have these dominant liquid staking protocols like Lido that have effectively overruled that that design decision. And now you can get delegated proof of staking from this not in Ethereum intrinsic mechanism, but through Lido instead. Now, Miles, I mean, have, yeah. is that a pretty accurate summary? And maybe you can tap so. into so. why why this came from Cosmos originally and how right. we can say it up in Cosmos. Absolutely. So in, with, in Cosmos, you know, they are explicitly, the change are designed explicitly to have, you know, 150 validators, 200 validators, right? Um, it's permissionless to enter those sets, but you need to be, you need enough stake to basically be in the top 150. Um, and, you know, Ethereum looked at Cosmos and did not want a validator set of 100, 150, or 200. Ethereum wanted hundreds of thousands of validators, um, and they wanted them to be individuals, right? Which were a lot, they're a lot harder, right? To censor by, say, like the government or something like that, right? And, you know, what actually came out of this design is that it made, you, you know, basically using a centralized exchange to stake on your behalf very, very attractive, right? You no longer had this 32 ETH minimum. You no longer had to set up your own hardware. You could actually have liquidity, right? You could actually sell your ETH on the centralized exchange while getting staking rewards, right? And so the unintended effects of this design choice was that Ethereum was at huge risk to having, you know, a handful of centralized exchanges really capture the majority of of of, of the network um, through st- uh, basically through retail uh, delegating to centralized exchanges to stake on their behalf, and that was an even worse you know that would be an even worse outcome than say having a hundred or two hundred validators right, um, and so there was I, I guess maybe I'll pause there. Meanwhile, over in Cosmos land, um, you know, there was a lot less activity. There was just a few different chains, but each chain had a very, very high staking rate. Um, And at the same time, they were trying to bootstrap the beginning of some DeFi activity, right? And so the opportunity cost on Cosmos was that, you know, it was very, very high for for unstaking and using your, um, your tokens in DeFi. Right. And so Cosmos knew that they needed to basically unlock all the stake liquidity in order to bootstrap a DeFi ecosystem. Um, but on Ethereum, you know, they had a very different set of circumstances, right? DeFi was already pretty, pretty active. It was in it was it was in the early stages of development. Um, but they had this an existential risk that you know, before the beacon chain even launched officially, it would be controlled by a few, a handful of centralized exchanges. And so that is why, you know, the idea took off on Ethereum when it actually originated in Cosmos. Um, you know, Cosmos didn't have any DeFi really at the time. And so the PMF was found on Ethereum. Um, and, and at the time, you know, the Ethereum community was very supportive of Lido because they also saw this risk. Um, and Lido was, you know, the one chance basically to avoid having a centralized or, you know, really mitigate those risks. Um, and so, yeah, that's maybe a little bit of the history of why it actually took off on Ethereum. Um, 
when it originated in, in Cosmos. Yeah, so that's just such a good summary and just makes me think about some of the beautiful randomness and sort of path dependency of how these things evolve. But yeah. basically to summarize everything that we're saying, there were two pressures here. One, there was over in Ethereum land, we were trying to design a system that couldn't be captured by a couple of large deep pocketed actors. So there were a whole bunch of design decisions, some that were made successfully, some that were made a little bit less successfully to prohibit that from happening. The goal being hundreds of thousands of geographically spread individual solo stakers. Then over in Cosmos land, they were actually struggling with something that Ethereum is starting to think about right now, which is because they started as a proof of stake chain, they had a much higher stake rate from the early days. And the amount of yield that you were getting from staking was quite high. So the challenge for Cosmos at that period of time was how can we make people not sacrifice opportunity cost for staking, but then also go do these other DeFi things. And that is what led to this idea of liquid staking delegation vouchers. And then, of course, liquid staking became very popular in Ethereum because the Ethereum Foundation got very concerned with a couple of entities, the Coinbases or Krakens or, you know, eventually maybe Binance's of the world, basically capturing the validator set of Ethereum because they just made it much, much easier to delegate stake to. So now what that ended up giving rise to was Lido, which is, again, not to put words in the mouth of the Ethereum Foundation, but I think is starting to move into the popular conscious of Ethereum natives as something to potentially be concerned about because it's taken a very core function of Ethereum, which is how it secures itself through staking and sort of made it subject to a different set of security properties and governance sets. So we're going to be getting into exactly what that is. But number one, I think this all kind of tees up the one of the main ideas that we're going to be exploring, which is what is the future state of liquid staking going to look like? And I think one of the ideas that we want to try to pull out there is what are some of the returns to scale that you get when you're when you're a liquid staking issuer? And for me, you know, I'll, I'll kind of go through a couple of the ones that jump out to mind for me, but then maybe you can hop in and correct me. Yeah. Number one, I think, is a very classic network effect akin to kind of like a telephone or a currency, which is basically just how useful is this liquid staking token in other ecosystems and how liquid is it? One of the main properties of one of the main advantages of liquid staking is, first of all, just instant liquidity. So once you stake your Ethereum, you can instantly move out of your position through this secondary market of something like Steve. And that's a, that's a very compelling value proposition. The other value proposition is sort of the opportunity cost that the original folks in Cosmos were trying to solve for. So once you've staked your ETH, you want to still be able to get some amount of capital efficiency from that. So you can take your stake position and use it to LP uh, in a, in a, in a um, decentralized exchange, for instance. So, you know, from, from the perspective of a a liquid staking token issuer, what you want to do is make your liquid staking token as useful as you possibly can. And the more useful that token is, the more liquidity there is for that token. And there's this sort of reinforcing positive flywheel effect that you get from those network yeah, effects. Absolutely. And I would also add, you know, I think even potentially even more so than liquidity or integrations, I think that, you know, what differentiates uh, different liquid staking protocols is also trust, you know, brands and security, right? And those have network effects, very, very powerful network effects as well. You do not want to be the the first user of a new liquid staking protocol, right? If if what you care about is that, you know, they're you're not going to lose your ETH, you're not you're gonna have liquidity, right? And then you're gonna be able to use it in DeFi. Um and so, you know, these compounding network effects lead to, you know, 
is likely going to be a winner take all or, or winner take most market structure. Um, and it, we've already started to see that on Ethereum in particular. And, you know, I think maybe looking across other ecosystems where it doesn't look like a winner take all market structure. I think there's some interesting, you know, we, we can kind of dig into that later, why, the, why it's so popular in Ethereum, but I think it does, uh, you know, really go back to Ethereum at the time when staking just started, right. When you had no ability to un unlock and, and, uh, withdraw your, your stake to Ethereum. So yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And safety, we're going to be getting into and just sort of the, the sort of governance structure of a liquid staking token issuer. The other advantages to scale that come to mind for me are sort of more traditional uh, returns to scale in terms of businesses. So if you think about Lido and as a sort of two-sided marketplace in between delegators of Ethereum and node operators who want to actually validate in the network, you kind of think of this model as almost like Amazon, right? Classic two-sided marketplace between, let's say, people who want to buy stuff and a network of vendors. And obviously, those two things have to have kind of these virtual effects if you can bootstrap supply and demand at the same time. So in the Amazon example, the more users that you have, the more suppliers and vendors that you're going to bring into your network because you have that demand. And the more you know products that you can sell, the more people that want to buy. And there's this sort of virtuous cycle that gets a flywheel that gets kicked into effect. And it's a very similar thing for, for Lido or any of these liquid staking token providers. The more user demand that you have, the more bar bargaining power that you have for node operators, the more quality node operators that you get, but the more that you can increase the rate on those node operators. Yeah. Well. And, and just to double click on that, uh, one, one thought that came to mind in, I think the tension that arises with, with Lido and other liquid staking protocols is that, you know, from the network's perspective, they want basically the validators of these liquid staking protocols, you know, they want as, as many as possible. They want it to be permissionless to onboard, right? But then think about, you know, what that does to a user and say, going back to that analogy with Amazon, what if every merchant could, you know, permissionlessly onboard to Amazon and then users on the other side, you know, don't have the quality assurances of, of you know, basically having a more control and you know higher standards in order to, to actually enter the supply side right so you could say it would be like a some customer of amazon buying something and then their package never arriving because they just let anybody come in and be a supplier right including scammers and so i think that's touches on the tension that we're seeing with lido at this point where they're huge right but they still have this you know whitelisted, you know, uh, validator set, right? Not just anybody can join. You have to basically be an institutional validator um, that meets very, very high standards. Um, and now we're finally starting to move away from that, but you can understand why that was so important in the early stages. And and even if it's, you know, basically a kind of against, goes against some of the network's values and principles, um, Lido would have never grown to the state that it is today had, you know, it been permissionless and lots of people lost their money because, you know, they basically onboarded a bunch of validators that were scammers or just, you know, uh, uh, operationally and, you know, incompetent basically. Man, Miles, that's such a good point. I don't want to go too, too far down this rabbit hole, but we could probably do a whole podcast on this about just two sort of these network based businesses. You could make the same analogy with the app store something like that, where Apple doesn't just allow anyone and they have a very set, you know, sort of standard for, you know, the types of applications that you want, because what they want to do is give users a good experience. So yeah. I make the same analogy with Airbnb. Actually, in the very early days, founders, the founders of Airbnb, Brian Chesky, he realized that people weren't signing up 
to you know rent Airbnbs because the pictures were crap. So he actually would go you know from person to person and help them take better photos. All these examples of unscalable things to create a better experience on the demand or user sides of these marketplaces. I think that's a really good analogy, and we should pick at it throughout the course yeah. of this season. I think there's a lot of lot of meat there. So Miles and I are going to be diving deep into what is the ultimate market structure for these for these. Uh, things look like. I think going into the season to just wrap this part of the discussion up, I think both of us would be in the camp of this is not going to look very much like a fragmented market structure. And this is probably going to be either a winner take all or a winner take most, just because there are such obvious returns to scale that it kind of seems like a, a natural monopoly type situation. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the more fragmented the market is, the more, you know, that degrades the actual value prop of liquid staking. Um, but then of course, the more, you know, monopolistic the market structure is, the higher the concerns are, you know, basically of that third party having uh, de facto control of, of the network, even though it's not, you know, it has a completely separate governance um, process and, and stakeholders, right? And so I think that kind of leads us to some of these other themes that we want to get into and, and how to, you know, the social scalability aspect, right, of, of growing these into a winner-take-all sort of end state. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe that segues pretty well into topic number two this season, which has largely been dubbed the self-limiting debate. You've also referred to it as the social scaling debate, but it's basically the idea that Lido or, you know, I apologize if this seems like we're mostly talking about Lido. Lido has the vast majority of market share for liquid staking. We're going to be getting into detail with some of the other major liquid staking providers as well. But Within the specific example of self-limiting, this has actually popped up with regards to Lido. I think there was a proposal a little while ago that Lido should self-regulate as basically as it got over a certain percentage of the market share that it should somehow cap that. I'm not I'm not a gigantic fan of that idea. What I do think is an important framework to set up, and frankly, one of the reasons I think I'm so interested in doing this season is Lido sits at a very unique place in terms of DAOs and protocol governance. You know, we did season two of this show on governance. I kind of walked away with a bit of a framework for how governance should work in crypto, where the closer you are to base layer infrastructure in in crypto, the more decentralized it's important to be. And the further away you are from that base infrastructure, uh, the less important it is to be. And it's very obvious, and frankly, it's been talked about an enormous a lot, an, an enormous amount, how dysfunctional DAO governance is today. And I think it's because people still don't understand or, or have this idea that if you're a game, you know, a, a crypto game, it's probably not as important for you to be decentralized as the governance of something like Ethereum. And oftentimes, maybe even you know, decentralized exchanges are a pretty good one to look at because there are really critical reasons why that should be decentralized. But the organization of a DAO often seems directly at odds with creating the best decentralized exchange, for instance. Oftentimes, I feel like you and I, Miles, are just like, man, if they just ran this thing like a company, we'd just be getting a better product here, wouldn't we? Lido is very interesting because decentralization uh, is actually a core part of the value prop. Because Lido is so core to the functioning of Ethereum as a protocol, it will actually allow itself to grow larger if core parts of the protocol are ossified and if members of the Ethereum community are... You know, it's sort of limited its surface area in terms of what it wants to do as a product, and it's uh, you know sufficiently decentralized itself. That will actually de-risk a lot of this fear of kind of being co-opted by a smaller set of governance, uh, if that makes sense. So, yeah. as opposed to it being core to the functioning of the product, 
the the decentralization is actually a core core part of the value pr- proposition of the product itself. Yeah, you know, as we just kind of walk through, right? The sequencing of you know decentralizing the protocol is extremely important because Flido had come out from day one with you know a a maximum like basically maximizing for decentralization and governance minimization. We would never be right in this in this have this new problem of Lido becoming too successful. Um, and to your earlier point, yeah, I, d- I don't think you know it's going to be healthy for crypto broadly to you know have the precedent be if you are so successful that you become a monopoly, the entire you know network will revolt against you. Right? That's not going to bring in the entrepreneurs that we need. Right? Um, but I would just go maybe just a double click on on why liquid staking is perhaps different than other, you know, governance, the governance of other DeFi protocols. Um, again, it's so close to the metal of Ethereum um, that, you know, the biggest version of Lido is going to be one where you have mitigated all of the governance attack risks and you have mitigated all of the technical, you know, security risks, right? Um, so that's really where Lido stands today. And I think we're talking about Lido, but I think if we see, you know, other ecosystems were developed in a similar fashion where it looks like there will be, you know, a winner take all provider. I think they will face the same problems that Lido does. Um, I mean, we'll get into it later, but eigenlayers in the same boat, right? And so really like what the perfect world outcome is for any liquid staking protocol is that you do have a monopolistic market share, but you also have the full support of the network stakeholders and and user base, right? And to get that second piece right unlocked is you really have to mitigate all of the governance risks and all of the technical risks. Um, and so that's where Lido is today, you know, with things like giving Steve holders the ability to veto certain proposals that could be malicious, right, to the network. Um, that's where they would like to be going in a few years when they basically ossify core parts of the protocol, core contracts, and you know is make them immutable, right? So they could never be changed through governance again. Those are things like the withdrawal contract um, and potentially even fees. We'll see exactly, you know, which areas they they do ossify completely. Yeah. And that that's a great point. I think the staking router and dual uh, East governance are a really great place to dig into is this kind of a precursor for how these liquid staking token issuers might try to decentralize themselves. One other framework that I want to give listeners is you know, you could actually look at something like corporate America or the stock market and differing reg- levels of regulation to give yourself a framework of how to slot protocols like Lido. And what I mean by that is there are certain companies that provide functions that are very close to the social contract or the metal, frankly, of how society works. And they're subject to different regulations and considerations that non-essential products like software or business software, for instance, are. A great example of this might be utilities. So utilities, similarly to how Lido is core to how Ethereum functions, utilities are core to how we all function as human beings because we all need running water, power, electricity, that kind of thing. Now, those sort of utility providers, they're also natural monopolies. So if we didn't regulate them at all, they'd be the best instances on earth, right, Miles? How much would you not pay for heat you know, if you're freezing your butt off in the middle of the winter? The, the thing is, we as a society have said, we don't actually think it's good. We don't want these utility providers to just be able to charge whatever they want because no one wants to get their eyes gouged out for their electrical costs. So what we've done is said, we are going to set a limit on how much CapEx you can invest on an annual basis and kind of give you a margin that we think you should be earning. And that's what you'll get. And 
The benefit of utilities in that framework is that they're quite safe and they have a gigantic TAM. I mean, everyone on earth really needs them, but they aren't these crazy high earning companies, uh, you know, high earning stocks that, you know, the tech companies are. Conversely, you could also look at something like military or, you know, sort of weapons technology providers as another example of something that's very close to the functioning of, of how society works. Also very heavily regulated. Those governments are very lucrative. Co- government contracts are very lucrative or long term. Uh, and actually, those stocks have done quite well. But, you know, I, I do want to just poke at this because it's sort of the VC argument of, oh, the TAM is enormous, right? But there are other considerations outside of just TAM including, you know, the rake and growth opportunities and stuff like that. Yeah. So the dam, the dam is so big that it actually ends up becoming a utility, um, which is, which is not a good outcome. Right. But I think picking and choosing, you know, which it will be interesting to see how it develops. Right. Because you just reminded me of, you know, surge pricing for heat would be really bad, but surge pricing for Uber and Lyft is okay. Right. And that's because we want a competitive market in those areas. And so, Liquid staking is one of those that is right, you know, right on kind of the border. Um, but because Ethereum didn't build it natively into the protocol, you know, I think that's basically an admission that it's going to be, you know, uh, there is going to be a market for this and people will make lots of money. So it's either, you know, if, if you don't build it into the protocol, then that's, that's basically what's going to happen regardless. Um, and now it's just, how do we basically let this market evolve in the healthiest possible way and and don't let it actually end up you know destroying the network yeah absolutely very well said so to sum up the themes that we've talked about thus far is market structure what is the future market structure of liquid staking going to look like on ethereum and and outside of ethereum then there's this self-limiting debate right so how big can these protocols really get before members of the community say hey we're starting to get a little worried about this now, I want to introduce two new themes in one here. One is a little bit more high level, but highly relevant within the context of, context of liquid staking. And then the other is a little bit more concrete. So one idea that's going to keep popping up, I think, time and time again in our conversation is this idea of the principal agent problem. So the principal agent problem is a problem if you're a student of corporate governance or you've been a manager at a large company or a shareholder, you're probably relatively familiar with this. But it's it's a pretty well studied problem that kind of deals with the the differing incentives and objectives in between principals. So let's say stakeholders or shareholders in a company and managers who are acting as agents on behalf of these shareholders. And you, you, in theory, these people should be going towards the same thing. But if you actually dig into it, they have a different set of incentives. And this could come from a number of different reasons. So one could just be differing objectives. So agents might actually pursue personal benefits at the expense of shareholder wealth. You see this crop up very popularly, you know, this concept of empire building or paying yourself lavish salaries or doing things that are, you know, you're extracting a lot of wealth instead of building it on the behalf of shareholders. And maybe it's for ego reasons or whatever it is. The other is information asymmetry. So you can be the most, you know, active shareholder on the planet and read everything that the company puts out. You are simply not going to know as much as the agents and the day-to-day managers of a company. So those are some of the reasons why the principal agent problem exists. And you, you know, you start to see this as well in crypto, actually. So a really great place that the principal agent crops up is in liquid staking, frankly, because you as a delegator of Ethereum, you are simply not going to know as much as 
the node operators, you know, that's on the other side of the network for Lido or the day-to-day operations of, of Lido. You aren't going to audit, you know, the security contracts or, or anything like that. So there's already kind of this principal agent problem. And frankly, I think the original designers of Ethereum proof of stake understood this. That was part of the reason why you didn't have a delegated proof of system to begin with. That was why Ethereum people were very concerned about the centralized exchanges of the world taking an outsized control of stake in these big staking pools. And now it's cropping up to, again today in the form of Lido and other dominant liquid staking providers. CBETH could also be a part of this conversation as well. So that that's going to be a problem that is you know keeps cropping up within this this conversation, and the the third the fourth or more concrete version of this is actually restaking. Uh, so restaking actually exacerbates this principal agent problem because it just introduces more opportunity, but also more complexity and information asymmetry than even just sort of vanilla liquid staking. So, maybe Miles, can I turn it over to you here and just. You just give a, a sort of brief high level of of what restaking is and where it fits in the liquid staking conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, restaking is is basically another layer of liquid staking, or of of I guess there's a lot of different flavors on on top of the um, on top of the protocol. And so, the general idea is you have you know an enormous amount of uh, capital that has been locked up to secure Ethereum, and then you have you know, an enormous amount of rollups, bridges, oracles, all of these other highly critical um, protocols that really are need to function well for the network, you know, for everything to work on the network, for DeFi to exist. Um, but they have an, a, a much less economic security than the underlying network, right? And so how do we find ways to unlock all of this existing staked capital to secure all these other very, very important, you know, whether it's rollups or bridges or oracles protocols on the network. Um, and so there are, you know, a lot of different flavors of this. Um, but I would say like the, the least involved flavor of restaking is that, you know, I've already delegated my stake to a liquid staking provider, um, in Lido or rocket pool or CBETH or another. And now I want to basically take my existing, you know, staking voucher and redelegate that to an operator of these rollups, bridges, oracles, et cetera. Um, and in exchange for, you know, basically taking on double slashing risk, right? So if the person I redelegate my stake to does something wrong, I get slashed. If the original validator that I had delegated it, my stake to does something wrong, I get slashed, right? Um, in order basically taking on that additional risk, I'm going to get rewarded with say, you know, fees of the rollup, uh, tokens of the rollup emissions, et cetera. Um, and so in the best case scenario, this basically is a huge unlock for the scalability of Ethereum. Um, we bring the, you know, the ability to export this trust right at the L1 layer, um, or export the economic security of the L1 layer to the L2s and all these other critical areas. Um, that, you know, is that would be a very happy, there's a very happy path outcome there. And then there's a very scary path. Right. Um, and I think that that we can get into it later, but you know, it's very similar to Lido where if restaking becomes, um, you know, as prevalent as people think it could be, or as pre as prevalent as staking itself, right. Then you're going to have not only Lido, but you're going to have another third party like Eigenlayer whose governance, you know, is just as critical as the governance of 
Ethereum itself, right? And so I think we already see this, you know, uh, there was a great bankless pod the other day with, with Vitalik and, uh, and Justin Drake um, and a few others who, uh, who had basically, you know, were trying to get ahead of this problem and they're airing their concerns now. Um, whereas with Lido, they it really, it wasn't until Lido was clearly going to become the de facto winner take all, um, you know, winner uh, liquid staking protocol. And then, you know, the whole self-limiting debates came out, right? Uh, Eigenlayer hasn't even launched yet. And, and these, you know, core Ethereum community members are already speaking out um, their concerns. And I think I, I like the analogy of we should treat it like AI. Um, and I couldn't agree more, but I think it is, you know, challenging given the nature of open source um, uh, development, right? Even if Eigenlayer or Eigenlayer and another basically are as careful as they could possibly be um, in, in implementing this and, and you know, slowly onboarding capital and being very, very, you know, um, very, very diligent in terms of who they actually onboard to, you know, the restaking side and which rollups and what the security of that looks like. It could just be a fork that comes out, right? That is plays things a little bit more fast and loose. Um, and then we end up with, with something, you know, like very bad situation. So, um, yeah, I think there's a ton of similarities here. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And we're actually going to be hearing from Sriram himself, who is just just really strikes me. He's got a lot of the qualities of founders that I really admire in, in crypto and that you know, you're absolutely right. Vitalik himself, he actually came out with a post on his blog May 21st of this year called Don't Overload Ethereum's Consensus, which many interpreted as sort of a direct shot at at restaking and some of the, the security challenges that that poses for Ethereum. I think Sriram responded very, very well, frankly, just openly answers any questions from the community. His heart is definitely in the right place. So we're going to be hearing from him in this season. I think one of one of the things that helped me understand this 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 topic is if if you actually think about things from the perspective of a validator and you sort of view these different sort of sidecars for additional revenue that validators can can recognize. So one of those actually is MEV boost where you have this off-chain marketplace for MEV and a lot of that ends up getting paid to validators, assuming that we don't have the MEV burn. That's an additional form of revenue for them, right? That's great. Restaking is a very similar concept. So if you have sidecar one and that's MEV boost, that's an additional source of revenue. Boom. Restaking is going to be another source of revenue that you can run as well. And the problem with that and, and where this where this goes back to the principal agent debate is before, as a as a solo staker, you're just underwriting your own knowledge and hardware, right? There's no principal agent problem. As soon as you get liquid staking, then you're actually underwriting another node operator and Lido. So there are two sets of, you know, uh, security dependencies that you don't fully understand. Then with restaking, suddenly those val uh, node operators can be running all sorts of different hardware that frankly, you know, you, you just can't possibly have information to. And I think on top of that, one of the things that we're going to see for liquid staking tokens is actually this race and pressure for yield, right? So right now it's the bear market. There's not a whole lot going on, frankly, outside of liquid staking. But eventually when the market comes back, everyone's going to be chasing yield the same way that they were during the last cycle. And I say that only because chasing yield is the most consistent trend in finance of the last you know, millennia. So I think that's going to happen again. And then what you're, I think, going to get is these different liquid staking tokens. They're all going to advertise a different amount of yield. 
And they're not necessarily going to say where the yield is coming from or what are the risks associated with the yield. And the one thing that we know about retail is they don't fully understand this stuff and they'll just ape into the, the highest variable APY. So that's kind of my concern is that you probably have a little bit of an adverse selection thing where maybe even if Eigenlayer is very careful and all signs point to the idea that they will be, you're absolutely right, Miles. There might be a clone of Eigenlayer in the future who plays a little bit more fast and loose, doesn't disclose some of the risks and ends up taking a lot more risk and retail ends up funneling into it. And we've had numerous examples of protocols and companies that that, that whole cycle has played out within crypto. So I think that's the that's the thing to understand about restaking. And we're going to be diving deep into this whole problem with, with Sri Ram himself. Yep, exactly. Yeah. I think, you know, we're going to hear all these concerns around the amount of human involvement that is required in order to actually curate, you know, which... Um, who is allowed to, you know, use Eigenlayer to restake to curate which liquid staking tokens can be used for restaking, um, and of course that is all very, very necessary, especially in the earliest earlier stages. But similar to liquid staking, you know, I think as the winners emerge, the de- networks will demand, you know, them to evolve their their governance and their basically their protocols design to reduce human involvement to basically, you know, ossify some of these these core contracts, and so. Yeah, I see a very similar arc playing out here. The last thing that I want to touch on here is a little bit less of a theme, but you know, we thus far we've been talking quite a bit about Lido. Lido has the most market share by a pretty wide margin today, but there are other competitors in the liquid staking market which have been pretty successful at stealing market share, and they've had very, very, very different designs, right? So CBE would be an example of this. Frax would be an example of this. Rocket Pool would be an example of this. And I think one of the, we're, we're going to have a great episode near the tail end of this season where we're going to hear from the leaders of some of these liquid staking token protocols. And it's going to be more of a tactical sort of, uh, you know, we're, we're going to kind of get tactically into some of what these protocols are doing to grow their market share, including everything from distribution. I think sort of a cool trend of how liquid staking token providers have been able to grow is they sort of get in bed with a source of distribution, right? So one of the the original reasons why Lido took off is Aave listed it. It was the first liquid staking token to be issued on Aave and you had a bunch of DGENs running sort of these recursive leverage trades, right? And that's what really helped it take off. You've also seen kind of uh, Curve is another great example of that because of the rebasing sort of A token construction of Steeth as opposed to something like CBETH, you know, it isn't supported by Uniswap, but Curve does support it. So you've sort of seen these very more tactical sort of distribution oriented plays that these protocols have made. And I think we really want to dive into that, you know, also even just the the structure of these protocols, Fraxy, uh, you know, Frax has a very aggressive sort of vertically integrated structure and in play at the liquid staking market. And I think you and I want to get a sense of, is this going to play off or is this going to play out for them or are they taking kind of uh, too much risk? Basically? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing that that I want to get at is we are we're going to talk a little bit about there are some very interesting experimentation that's being run with liquid staking derivatives. So basically, and, and maybe I'll caveat this by saying I think we both think that LST Phi is a bit of a misnomer. That is to say, if your entire advantage of a DeFi protocol is that you just take on liquid staking tokens as opposed to the underlying collateral, you know the majors already do that, right? The Aves of the world, the makers of the world, they already accept that. So. You know, if you're a, if you're a protocol that's listening to this and you're thinking you're going to build a large sustainable business based only off of taking liquid staking tokens as collateral, yeah, you, you might want to consider something that's a little bit more of a moat. It might be a good bootstrapping mechanism in the beginning, but I don't think a sustainable 
business that strategy makes, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think I think that's fair. I, I've never really understood the term LST Fi. Um, I think you know if it just refers to people using their liquid staking tokens in DeFi, that's that's great. But it's been around for a while. Um, I think what will be more interesting is to see you know how does usage on rollups evolve, right? Um, what it could can how are these you know basically going to be secured with these bridges, right? Or can they be natively mint on? minted on a roll-up i'm i'm honestly not sure we need to we need to dig into that um and then you know what are some of the other really interesting sort of, uh, i guess innovations that you can do to unseat somebody like lido right so even outside of ethereum i think stride has has the stride team stride um is in cosmos um and they've really kind of taken the early lead in liquid staking in cosmos and core to their value prop is something called rate limiting right so they basically set a limit on how much you know can be staked or unstaked every day um and so if the limit is say 20 percent of current stake that would you know mitigate the risk of something like a security bug happening and somebody stealing all of this the staked assets right so what are these you know innovations in terms of security what are innovations um in terms of you know differentiating on yield and what is that, you know, how does that balance out with, with the risk? Um, I think we'll see lots more experimentations and unfortunately I think we'll probably even see, um, you know, liquid staking tokens of restaked positions. Uh, there will be another third party that comes out and, you know, offers like some basket or a, you know, a tranched offering of all these different restaked tokens and you can have your liquidity too. Um, so we'll see that play out, but you know, at what point does this get dangerous and something blows up and then we kind of revert back to, you know, super conservative, right? I think we all yeah. know that the, you know, basically that the table is set up very well for another, for some sort of blow up in the next bull run uh, when people will be hunting yield. Sort of a super fluid restaking operation, if you will. Yeah. And I, I agree. I, I, I echo your concerns there. So I think that's probably a good place to end it. Just to sum up for those listening, the the major themes that we're going to be digging into, this idea of market structure is an idea that we're going to return to time and time again, both trying to sum up how it exists today versus how we think it's going to develop in the future. This idea of self-limiting and especially some of the innovations around sort of the staking router in Lido, dual Steve ETH uh, governance, that, that sort of thing, or Steve Lido governance. We're going to be talking about the principal agent problem. That's going to be a recurrent theme across a whole bunch of different issues. We're going to be talking about restaking some of the innovation that's going on within liquid staking. And then finally, we're going to move outside of Ethereum to talk about how liquid staking is taking off in, in other ecosystems as well. And Miles, I think that's a pretty good summary of what we're going to be talking about this season. I, for one, I'm pumped. Man. I think this is going to be great. Yeah. I'm excited to dive into it with you, getting all the nitty gritty details. Timing couldn't be better. God, you know, Eigenlayer will is is on mainnet and will you know be rolling out its launch over the next year um, and yeah couldn't couldn't be more excited for the season. Me too, amigo. All right, I'll let you go and uh, I'll see you back here. We're going to be talking to Hasu for episode one. Get his take on some of these ideas. Yeah.